All right, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Web Zero podcast. I'm Bitchel Ritson here with my co-host Timluk Miptev, and we are very excited to be delving into all aspects of the decentralized internet with you, the crypto space in general, and what it means from our perspective to rebuild the internet totally from the ground up. So, Tim, how are you doing? Are you excited to pod with me today? I am. I'm excited to pod with you today. I'm excited to pod with you on, you know, what I hope is the first of many days potting together. The first of, of many pods potting around together. And Tim, this is actually an especially auspicious day to begin our potting career because today is actually my 31st birthday. Oh, this is happy birthday. I think this will give the audience a good idea for like you know, sort of my personality that like you had mentioned this prior and I just like completely forgot to, you know, put anything there. So you're going to get like sort of nice low to medium grade autism here. I, I appreciate it. And that, uh, you know, me being 31 means we've known each other for 10 years now. We, we, uh, I think I was 21 when I, I first sailed overseas and we first, uh, started hanging out. Yeah, 31 is when I had my first or sort of my only real like midlife crisis. So it's a really productive age. I think it'll be fun. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm having my midlife crisis right now, and the solution is to pot about crypto, I realize. Um, so I'm planning to solve all of my, my problems with this. Actually, the, uh, the reason I'm not going to be around on, on Monday for work is I'm, I'm heading out into the wilderness for three days uh, into the Cabinet Mountains. So listeners, if I'm eaten by a grizzly, I'm sorry that I uh, will only have left you with this sterling content. And uh, But that's, I think, the right occasion for us to get really into the meat and potatoes of this thing, because I could die at any moment this weekend. So I think it's, it's good for us to start talking about why we are calling this the Web Zero podcast and what we mean when we say Web Zero and not Web 3. So from my perspective, Tim, and you can fill in any of the gaps here, I think we came to this idea because we're both passionate about not merely iterating atop existing infrastructure, going from Web 1 to Web 2 to Web 3 to Web 40, but completely rebuilding it. Yeah, I think like the dream that any person of reasonable creativity and productivity always has is to be able to just like rip everything up and like start anew. It's like the same feeling of like, you know, fully rearranging your furniture or just like in like the room or moving somewhere or, you know, what have you. And I think that in a very, very real sense, uh, we're trying to not just build and try to take what we have and redo. And when you're doing that, you're by necessity using stuff that's already there. No one ever does like a full redo without, you know, using the pieces in the world, but there is this sense of not just adding another layer onto it. Of course, because sometimes what you have, in this case, the Web2 stack, is, is not set up for the purposes that we want to use it for. You know, a great example, I had real shitty pots and pans, and for my birthday, my girlfriend very kindly gave me a whole new set of beautiful pots and pans that we hung on the wall this morning because you, you just can't cook an egg in something that's uh, as sticky as I got. So when we're trying to create this new internet, there's just nothing that can be done with some of these old systems, and we can learn from them. We can take these lessons. But on a very literal level, 
the computing stack is, is built on tools that predate networking itself, Unix and and things like that. So we don't want to merely pave over these potholes. We want to deliver something new based on our understanding of how we actually want to use the internet to connect with each other. Yeah, and I think that over the years, we've accumulated a lot of nice, like, assets and approaches in computing. Like, if you take, like, you know, everything that we're proposing to do still runs on top of Unix underneath in overlay. Um, you know, we're doing this podcast over a web, like a web two platform. And one of the things we're, you know, most excited about is just everything related to crypto. So I think that then puts you in this, you know, what we'll call web three paradigm. And it's very much about, you know, finding a way to recombine all that stuff in a, like in a very pragmatic sense. Um, so yeah, I think I think you wanted to start now just by talking about some like the ways we got into this space in the first place, like you know how we started to get like interested in these tools and like crypto in particular, but you know every like everything else involved in the stack as well. Yeah, that's exactly right because I think for our listeners, you know, everyone comes at this from a, a different perspective, and I think you and I actually, despite being. Um, co-workers uh, and co-hosts, we actually have really different viewpoints on what we value in this space. You know, you're a smart, technical guy, and I, I really am not so technical. I'm more of a, a word man, and that has sort of affected how we approach this. So I'm curious, Tim, how, how did you start caring about, about crypto? What got you into it? Um, the first thing, well, definitely like in the first, like two, in, not the first, but the, the 2013 Bitcoin run up, I got into it just in terms of buying it, you know, hanging out, looking, like looking at it, uh, just cause I tend to get into things that are out there. And then for, I sort of was in it permanently after 2016, um, and seeing like the new possibilities for what you could do in Ethereum and taking like programmability of the assets to the next level. So, and then I took a little bit of a pause in that I was still into crypto, but I was working mostly on Urbit, which we'll talk about later and will be like a big theme of all, like all these things. And then all of those threads came together in 2020. Um, and since then I've pretty much been in this like, you know, Urbit plus crypto world. Um, so sort of tech plus all the ways to combine the tech to uh, interact with crypto assets. But I think your, your thing was pretty different because I actually remember sort of, you know, recruiting or like grooming you into it like five years ago yeah yeah you brought me into the game and um ruined me uh in in that way i mean so i am by by trade and training a, a writer and i was busy making my millions as a as a fiction writer as as all of us do and you literally showed up at my doorstep with a, a recruitment pitch and it was it was almost out of a movie you said this is the day this is the day your life changes. You got me. You got me drunk at dinner and, and and said you need to come work for this crypto project, and that was really the first time I'd considered anything about this space. And I came on sort of as a communications person, but ended up becoming really passionate about the the possibilities here. And you know, I was convinced by the same things that convinced a lot of other 
idealistic and perhaps slightly foolhardy people at the beginning, big claims about blockchain voting and banking the unbanked and medical records accessible from everywhere. And, you know, the years have passed, we still don't have those things, but the technology is so exciting and really enabling all these wonderful world-changing use cases that I have stayed in and stayed interested and um, been excited to continue working on this project. And, and now being urbit-pilled, um, getting really excited to work on that system. Yeah, I guess, like, I pretty much just sort of come to you all the time and throw <laughs> these things out with, like, greater or lesser, or with, you know, usually, like, a lot of passion, and then, like, it depends on which things stick, so I think the good thing I'll say about, like, well, obviously crypto in general, but also my interest in Urbit is that I kind of didn't pitch it to you till I was a couple years in, and it had kind of stuck, so that at least gets through my initial, like, overly enthusiastic phase where I'm you know, thinking something is the solution to everything. Well, I think that's why this is a, a great partnership. I think you get really into things really quickly, whereas I am innately skeptical of everything and hate everything. And so uh, for for something to, to stick on, on both those ends means that there must be something there. So I think that it's worth, you know, as we talk about our path to Web Zero, it, we really want to understand where are we right now. Um, it's the 2022 bear market. There is some optimism and also some cynicism. Some high-profile projects have collapsed, but a lot of really exciting new projects are continuing apace with just as much enthusiasm as I've ever seen in the space. So what do you, what do you think is going on right now? Yeah, so... I think the main takeaway that everyone has correctly from the last couple of years is that there's stuff that you can use this for and that people want to do. And there's something at the intersection of like DeFi, token swapping, uh, usage of stable coins, NFTs um, that people want to do. And that's, you know, I think everyone knows that, so I won't belabor the topic. Um, and I think everyone also knows that developer and investor awareness has been sticking despite the bear so far in a way that I don't really see changing. Um, and then I guess the other one, the other thing that I'm personally really interested in, and we'll have to see if it like plays out uh, as I think it will, is the ETH like proof of stake merge, I think will be a big deal on a lot of levels. I don't want to go, you know, too far into that, but I think like not not even you know, the environmental thing is interesting and I think will have an impact. But I think mostly um, just the change supply mechanics um, and also ability to, like, you know, earn yield in a deflationary aspect, like, asset, will be a pretty, like, be a pretty big deal. So there's, like, I think a couple possible catalysts uh, and also a lot of interest to go for as soon as any of those catalysts kind of takes off. And I think that interest is really the thing that is convincing me that we're in a different place than the last bear market. I remember when those prices collapsed a few years ago, everyone, so many people were jumping off the bandwagon. They thought that the bubble had burst for good. And now all of the sensational headlines and people saying crypto are done, it is all people outside the space looking in. But if you look at the people who are actually working in crypto, investing in crypto, developing the technology, it's there's more 
optimism than ever before, and everyone is continuing on really excited, and I think that that's a, a great sign. So, like, which directions of what people are working on seem the most interesting to you um, as someone who's, like, getting into this more recently? Well, I think for me, the uh, once again, as someone who is not super technical, who doesn't have, you know, who isn't innately jazzed by the by the actual coding or the moving forward of the of the technology i'm just really looking forward to applications that work i think that we're really on the precipice of a new sort of functionality in the blockchain space and i think that that is what is really going to prove this technology to people who are outside of it to get rid of some of the skepticism because i think when i talk about my work, what everyone, all my, you know, prissy little writer friends all say is, but I can't use any of it. None of it works. What are those, those fancy monkey pictures for? And it's hard to articulate the theoretical benefits without something to show them. I mean, should we take a little detour into that? Because like, this is such a common pattern with new technology that I get that people don't want to be let's call it scammed by enthusiasm where some new piece of tech comes along and you don't know how to evaluate whether it will be useful and whether it will catch on. And you kind of feel like you could spend your whole life going down those rabbit holes. So I get why people are skeptical, but I also think there's this really strong sense in crypto that there is something real here. And I've been trying to like encapsulate that lately on Twitter uh, under you know, my other, like, pseudonym there. I have, like, four. Um, I can give that later on. That's under, like, Basile Genève, um, who seems to be, like, catching on well. But his perspective is that, um, you know, the, the important question to ask for new tech, people will always ask, like, what are the use cases? Um, like, what can I do with it right now? And I think that that's the wrong question. And what you should be asking is just very simply, is it powerful and is it growing? So by powerful, it's like, is there stuff you can do with it that you can identify that this has, like, you know, affects a lot of people or carries a lot of financial value or, does, you know, any, like, has some high leverage? And then what you want to see with is it growing is, is it constantly and consistently, like, glomming more people onto it who in turn spread it? And I think that, you know, for your friends, what they're saying is that I don't care about monkey JPEGs, but... If there are enough people who care about monkey JPEGs and enough, like, you know, value is going there, at that point you do have to say, like, you know, actually maybe this is powerful. And this is, like, if you look back at, like, the early internet, like, in the 1990s, this was this thing people struggled with, like, all the time, which is that, like, in the same way as crypto, like, the use cases just weren't there. Like, people were like, okay, I can publish stuff on a website. And even if there were use cases, people didn't always want to make that change. I mean, there's those famous videos of Katie Couric saying, well, I just don't think I'll ever get an email. What is this thing? I, you know, I don't need that in my life. It's hard to imagine not having it now. You know, like, you know, like the Paul Krugman article from like 1999 or something where like, this is like 1999 where he's like saying the Internet won't have a bigger impact than like the fax machine very confidently. Like, I think there, there's a thing, I think there might be a fundamental personality difference between people who are kind of drawn to power of, like, technical power and people who feel like 
they're not going to be able to use it. Uh, that really affects their approach. So I think if you take people who are in like media, uh, it's obvious to them that you know you, they're not even like anti-tech, but this isn't something they can just do, and so they're just not as excited about that power, and probably you know at least subconsciously try to you know downplay it. And I think you know a good question to ask if you if you don't personally know about a subject, the way that I don't really with programming on a really technical level is to ask yourself, all right, what are the smart people I know who care about that subject doing and what are they saying? You know, it's, it's the, old, the old saying, 100 million smokers can't be wrong. And I, I look around <laughs> and I see what are, the, what are the, the smart, cool smokers in my life doing? And they're all, they're all working on Web3 projects. Yeah, that's like the is it growing part of my question, which is like, okay, if this thing is powerful, is it able to consistently attract those smart people and suck them in? Because if those two things happen, if you have something powerful and it like contains the ability to suck in smart people, uh, very big things tend to happen like faster than people think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so if we have these two things together, a fundamentally powerful technology and a growing community of developers, investors, interested minds that are pushing it forward, what do we need to take the next step to, that is missing f- from the perspective of someone outside of the crypto blockchain space? Yeah, so in terms of what we want, we want richer applications. And everyone knows that and is talking about, well, there's there's two big narratives on crypto Twitter right now, um, which I think are accurate, which is one, in order to like, now that we have better scaling with rollups, in order to drive the next wave of crypto adoption, we're going to need cooler and more interesting applications. And then there's the like kind of practical thing of what we need to get those applications, which is People put it under the heading of tooling or middleware or infrastructure, um, and there is a lot of investment going into those. I, I think we'll get into this more in a sec, but my personal thesis is that uh, they're correctly identifying the problem, which is that stuff doesn't fit together in ways that makes it hard to deliver those rich applications that people want. But I think their diagnosis is wrong in that, you know, I don't think tooling per se is the answer. But I do think they're accurately diagnosing a problem. Well, uh, don't be coy about this, Tim. What do you, what do you think is, is going to get us there? Yeah, so uh, I'm really all in on Urbit right now because I think we need a, what I'll call like a unified crypto OS, meaning like something that wraps all of the important parts of your computer into one thing, meaning networking, identity, authentication, database, uh, access to like blockchain state uh, in a way that you can then let it inter- like interact with other uh, machines like that. Um, because I think that if you get down to what people are doing in tooling, they're all trying to replicate that. And if we take just a little bit of context, um, you know, when you're dealing with a networked environment and you want an operating system for that, the way that's done in Web 2, uh, that we'll t- I think we'll talk about more in a, in a subsequent podcast, 
is the way you do that is you use the cloud as your operating system and have all these tools to orchestrate that. Web3 doesn't have that. And so when people are saying they want tooling, what they're saying is they kind of want to get back to like that paradise lost of having an operating system <laughs> to work with. Yeah, and that also makes a ton of sense to me as someone who is is not coding all the time. But I, I was just hiking with my friend the other day and reflecting on my impending middle age and was saying, all I want now is a, is a frictionless existence. I want to be able to do the things I want to do and have the the other parts of my life just be smooth and, and work well together because that's <laughs> often what would sign send me over the edge. You know, like I said, I want to be able to cook an egg without it sticking. And I think if you can live your life such that the parts are working together, there's, they're seamlessly integrated, you really have the opportunity to engage with a system as you see fit in a way that works for you. And that's as a user or as a developer. I want to follow on that because I think one thing that non-developers don't get about developers is that developers are people too. Like they have all of these same kind of, <laughs> like, um, this, yeah, they have, they have, they're, they're, they, they dislike friction in the same ways. They're lazy in the same ways. Like it's just a different medium. And I think that what everyone's starting to get at in crypto is that for developers, and then that's passed on to users, the experience kind of sucks and it has a lot of friction and not, it's not like fun and people don't know how to get around that but I think whenever people find something that feels like it might overcome that for them they tend to get really enthusiastic and you know in Urbit specifically people are just really really passionate about it as a tool because it's like one of the first times that like developers have felt hope and that's like a really it's like a really big statement but it's a real <laughs> No, it's, it's a real thing because, like, we've talked about this before, like, out of band, but uh, when you start developing and you've done some programs, well, and you were even, like, I was having you do some programming in, like, Urbit's assembly language, knock to do it, and I'm guessing that was, like, a fairly, like, sort of fun, uh, isolated it's intellectual a experience. puzzle, you know? Yeah, exactly, and I think that it's alternately a feeling of a little puzzle or, like, a nice Lego set when you start programming mm -hmm. and you can do some like stuff with it. It's one of, you know, it has a few different aspects of it. It's, it's a cool discipline because it's in there. But the problem is once you move to production programming, uh, a lot of friction starts to come up. And like where in your toy program, you don't have to worry about a database. You just save the values like in memory or to a file. When you're doing like a large scale application, uh, you have to start like fitting all these pieces together. And at each step, the friction keeps increasing. Yeah, there's just a lot of bullshit in life and in coding in particular, and that makes it not fun. It slows it down, and we don't get any closer to actually making these systems work for us the, the way we want it to. And so if we are both pretty all-in on Urbit, I think that that raises a question that is, is best fit for you. What actually is Urbit? Because I think a lot of people have heard of heard of it and it sort of has a reputation as a bit of arcana as being esoteric or unfriendly but it's it's a lot more simple than it than it seems yeah i mean it's gone through a lot of stages in its development and i think at different stages in its development it's needed to attract different types of people in order to like in order to do it and get them really passionate about it so 
Um, in that process, uh, people have said things like, oh, it's just like an art project or, you know, things like that. Um, what it is now is it's an operating system. So in the same, but it runs inside of an operating system on your computer. It basically makes like a little castle there that can sort of safely and reliably talk to all these other kind of castles sitting out there in internet space. Uh, so you just install a program on your computer or you can have, you know, a, a friend run, like, you know, run it for you on their computer, which I do for some people. And there'll be also like hosting services that exist. But basically you run the program and that program makes like a castle that has like a very specific in-out like door where it lets information in and out in a, you know, very specific way. And it also, you know, your castle has like a, an identity that all the other castles on the network can recognize. And I don't want to take the metaphor too far, but basically you're installing a program that, you know, Urbit calls it a ship. I'm saying castle here, but essentially the self-contained unit that can talk to all these other self-contained units that can all be running uh, applications which can be, you know, in this case, like uh, crypto applications is what we're specifically interested in here. And the reason this castle metaphor is interesting is because you actually are running the applications and storing the data within your own space. You own it. You control these processes, and you're not dependent on these large centralized companies like Amazon and, and Google to provide you the service, and then to arbitrarily change what they offer whenever they want. Well, I was going to say that I think that the, like, that aspect is sort of about the arbitrariness of their service is fine, but there's actually a much more practical and immediate benefit in terms of what you're saying. You know, you control it. The fact that it's this predictable environment from the computer's point of view that's isolated means that it's very easy for other urban developers to make applications that they know will work on your computer. So it becomes almost like an iPhone where you have like the app store and it's also like easier for it to upgrade um, and keep in like working order. Um, and I think so even more than like, you know, some of the, I don't know, like censorship or other things like that is just that it's like just practically um, just much more tractable to keep, to keep working. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting. Though I think, you know, I want to ask, some questions as someone who's relatively new to Urbit, just from the perspective of someone who's trying to get started, I'll say simply, isn't Urbit pretty hard to use? Yeah. I'm thinking of how, like, how to answer, like, how to answer that. I think that in the short answer is, you know, yes, and the longer answer is, Longer, so it is like fairly hard to use. Fairly hard to use right now. If you're just like you know a user and you uh, you want to do it, it's doable. I have you know various friends of differing levels of technical ability, uh, you know who have got who have gotten onto it. Um, but it's it's not like trivial. I think the thing to keep in mind though is that it's a very sort of hard, clear system that can like that is becoming more and more solid. And because it's a system, it can be programmed. And there's a lot of very clear paths to making it more usable. So, for example, you know, there's one company called Third Earth that I think is doing good stuff. Uh, Tlon, one of the main companies developing on Urbit, will be releasing this soon. But they're just doing Urbit hosting, which is basically they're just scripting Urbit so you can go to a site, 
pay a little bit of money, and now an Urbit is running for you in the cloud that can do all these things. And then from the perspective of you as a user, it actually just becomes going to a website and putting in a password, and now you have access to like that whole machine. Um, and then from the perspective of what applications you can run on it, um, there was a lot of work done last year on what's called software distribution, uh, but basically just making it really easy for developers to give sort of this app store type experience where you can download new functionality to your Urbit and start using it. So I think that it's currently hard, but there's a lot of very clear programmatic approaches to just making that much, much easier over time. Yeah, and that's exactly how I use my Urbit. I just use it straight through another browser, and it's a pretty simple, friendly experience. Though another question is, if you're allowing someone else to host your server using a hosting service, doesn't that sort of defeat the point? You know, there's so much criticism within the quote-unquote Web3 space. Uh, if you're using centralized services, why are, you, why are you even here? Why not just do it on Web2? Um, there's a few different ways, like different ways to get into this. So the first one I would say is that I don't know if centralized, decentralized is the right dichotomy. Um, for, for some things it is for very base layer crypto type assets like Ethereum, I think it is. But generally what people are talking about is can you exit while not getting totally screwed in the process of that exit? And if you have a Twitter account, and you stop liking Twitter, you know, maybe they don't even ban you, maybe just, I don't know, just philosophically, you don't, li you, you don't like Twitter. Um, you can't They won't give really you a blue check exit. mark. Right, well, yeah, exactly. They won't give you a blue check mark, and so you want to leave. The problem is that your entire network that you've built up there stays there, and so if you go somewhere else and start publishing, um, no one's going to be reading your thoughts, or you'll have to do, like, a lot of work to get them to, you know, go to where you are. Whereas with an Urbit, if you know, you don't want to, like, be hosted by a service. There's a very clear technical way for them to just give you your Urbit and let you run it somewhere else or with somewhere else. So I think the first thing is that, you know, that exit is possible. Um, but the other one is that one of the biggest benefits of Urbit isn't just things like, you know, you own it, but it's also that it's very easy for developers and very clear for them to write applications to. So all of those benefits in terms of being able to run rich crypto applications uh, from you know your your own Urbit, uh, that that exists regardless of who's like of who's hosting it. So I think the other part is that uh, security and full decentralization take time. And if there's aspects to Urbit that are really valuable along the way in terms of participating in this big network in a way where that you can like change how it's hosted if you need to and you don't fully lose, you know, you don't just lose your identity. Um, I think as long as we can keep building it up by using those things, we can sort of progressively address security and privacy as it goes. Like there's, you can't do everything at once. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like one great thing about Urbit, it's a system that's, um, set up to be to be upgraded, and it it is being upgraded as we speak. You know, some people complain about the the UX, but there are a lot of solutions coming, aren't there? I mean, we just saw some incredible demos last week, and I think that the time is surely coming when you won't be able to tell the difference between using Urbit and any other operating system. Well, 
you'll be able to tell the difference because some of the stuff you can do is like really cool and you won't be able to, and you can't do it in other places. Like you'll easily. be able to tell the difference um, because it's better on orbit. Yeah. I think, um, there's a few things converging at once. I think, um, companies like Holium are doing really cool things in terms of building UXs on top of it that can like, that then developers can plug into. I think on the hosting side, we were just talking about, but also that even includes, when you buy or subscribe to like some urban hosting service, uh, it can have apps pre-installed so that there's less onboarding. They can include like, you know, discovery options for like uh, what, for what to do with it or what types of like, you know, groups or applications to interact with. Um, all that, that's like, there's this exponential effect or like what I mean is like things build on themselves when you have a like rich, um, platform base, you can start like making an improvement in hosting that makes it easier to like onboard people to good UXs, which makes it more attractive to build those UXs, which then makes it more attractive to like you know develop backend or like crypto access stuff. And I think we're starting to enter that phase where you know those things you get this like very cool positive feedback loop. Yeah, and I think that really brings us back to our initial thesis for this episode and for the show that. Web Zero is is building the internet anew, and Urbit is a pretty fundamental example of that, of changing the way that computing and networking happens, because we just have a better understanding now of how we want to use the internet. We mostly want to use it to interact with each other, whether that is um, socially or financially. There, The networking aspect is really important. If you were going to rebuild the internet, you wouldn't do it as it is now. You would build something like Urbit. I mean, as you have said to me many times, if Urbit didn't exist, someone would build it, but it does exist, and, and that's why we're so excited to use it and build on top of it. I should, we'll probably, we should just start saying this in future episodes. I think that what Web Zero is, is it's almost like this massive counterfactual thought experiment, which is like, what if it was 1990, but people realized at the time had people had realized in the 1970s and 80s that you needed to have like like native networking in an operating system and you needed to have databases integrated in it and also in this hypothetical 1990 uh, cryptocurrency exists uh, which is you know it's not unthinkable it's it's I mean it's it's pretty unlikely but there's not a, there, there's not a <laughs> it's fundamental unlikely that in the 1990s <laughs> cryptocurrency exists there's not a fundamental reason that it couldn't have existed technically in 1990. Of course, there's, like, you know, a lot of uh, sort of path-dependent and, like, idea maze-dependent reasons that it didn't happen. But technically, like, Bitcoin could have existed in 1990. But what I'm really getting at is Web Zero is this, is this ethos of let's sort of go back to 1990, but with, like, everything we know now and all of the best primitives that have happened along the way in terms of we do have cryptocurrency. Uh, there have been like, you know, interesting things uh, in networking. Um, there's all like, there is all of this development time that's gone into Urbit itself, uh, which you can't sort of imagine away. And let's sort of bring all those back. And now let's redo the internet, like, you know, the internet from scratch using those like operating system networking and current and sort of currency global blockchain consensus uh, primitives. Yeah, it's incredibly exciting to imagine and takes us to really what we believe is is the one thing missing from Urbit, which is seamless 
native crypto access. And I guess now is a good a time as any to spoil that. We are actually working on a project to deliver that at Ukbar. Yeah. So, I mean, like much like Urbit, I think like Ukbar fits in this category where uh, if Urbit wins and, you know, gets wide adoption, um, if Ukbar did not exist, someone would create it because basically it's just a blockchain uh, right now running as or will be running as a roll-up, like settling to Ethereum and in some ways overlaying Ethereum in much the same way that like Urbit overlays your like, you know, Mac or Linux operating system. And it's it basically lets any program inside Urbit uh, treat uh, calling out to the blockchain the same way you treat calling like, you know, to save, like, to save a file or to like, you know, message someone over the network. It's just this like, you know, simple line of code of, I want to send this message to the smart contract and then your Urbit listens for events coming back and, you know, updates you when that, you know, when that changes. But basically bringing that into this like, just being another part of this fully unified system. Yeah, and you know, this this isn't a shill podcast. We're not going to spend most of the episodes talking about Ukbar, but I think it is relevant to our listeners to know from what perspective we're coming. And the reason that we're tackling this project isn't just because we believe there's a market fit for it, but because it is a fundamental aspect of this reimagining of the internet and what we can do with it. Yeah, I mean, Web Zero is all about, like, taking cool stuff we've discovered since 1990 and then, like, sort of bringing it back in the past to a time machine to, like, create, like, a cooler timeline. And I think that with the architectural success of rollups on Ethereum, a big new design space has opened up where you can use other languages in those layer two execution environments. And so that suddenly presents this, like, really cool opportunity for us to... Um, take Urbit's native language, execute it in that like layer two environment, but still get all the benefits of you know the existing network of assets there. Um, you know the like the security. We don't have to build out sort of uh, blockchain like a layer like layer one decentralization and security from day one. So yeah, I think that this is just another really cool primitive that we don't want to sort of yank into our time machine and then shoot forward in the best timeline. Yeah, and it's it's cool because I think this sort of technology gets exactly the benefits that you've described um, from working with Ethereum without inheriting some of the, the difficult aspects of, of working with it, in particular the EVM, which a lot of people have sort of banked their projects on EVM compatibility, but that's something that we don't think is quite as necessary as some other people. Yeah, this is a sort of more controversial thing, although it's worth noting that there are other projects in the space like, uh, you know, StarkNet that are taking the same approach that, okay, they want to keep a lot of the guarantees of Ethereum as a settlement layer and data availability layer, but without, um, you know, in an alternate like VM environment. So, yeah, I think this is... If our thesis with regard to both Urbit and the value of like seamlessly integrating with Urbit plays out, I think this will be really compelling. And you know, if not, we'll be sleeping on the street. I love sleeping. That's why I'm going camping. That's exactly. I want to be homeless and outdoors. Yes, you're fully emotionally hedged. So good for you. <laughs> so I think that that really explains where we're coming from in this podcast and 
what we're interested in. We're really excited to go on this journey with you towards Web Zero and continue delivering high, exciting content like this. But you know, as you're waiting for the next episode, if you're interested in these ideas and excited about it, I think we have some great resources to refer people to to continue learning and interacting with us in, in different spaces, which we'd love to do. Yeah, so we'll have the links to these, like, below the pod. But, um, you know, I think I do a lot of this urban maximalism boosting on Twitter on my account, like, uh, Basile Sportif. Um, we'll link to that. Um, Jesse has his account, Bitchel Ritson, which we can also, like, link to. Um, in terms of, like, an overview of Urbit as of, like, mid-2022 and where it's at, uh, the director of the Urbit Foundation, Josh Laban, did a great podcast in terms of the content he lays out about just sort of what the system is and what the ecosystem is like right now. So we'll give a link to that as well. Um, and then in general, you can, you know, hit, we'll give our Urbit IDs. If you get on, want to hit me up, uh, you can also, you know, DM me on Twitter or if like nothing is working, you can get into our Discord on Ukbar and the gatekeepers there will like, you know, let you find your way to us. Awesome. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed. So please like and subscribe if that's a thing that even happens on podcast. I think we'll, I think we'll put YouTube. this I think we'll put this on YouTube or like have it like, you know, in RSS feeds like Apple. So yes, like and subscribe. Also subscribe. Engage. Uh, until then, thank you guys for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of Web Zero.